0: This is Tom Fox. I think everyone knows of my love for classic monster movies. I've blogged about them, I have podcast about them, I've talked about them, and I've decided for the month of October I'm going to mine great monsters, great mad scientists, and some of these creations for leadership lessons for compliance practitioners. So over the month of October on Popcorn and Compliance, I'm going to feature Frankenstein, the Wolfman, the Mummy, Count Dracula, perhaps the Invisible Man, perhaps some mad scientist. It's going to be a fun exploration of a topic that uh, I thoroughly enjoy and is certainly near and dear to my heart. I hope you will join me as today we take up Count Dracula. But first, Quick word from our sponsor, and we'll be right back. Hello, and welcome to another About Leadership.
1: It's Richard Lummis, and I'm here again with Tom Fox for another discussion on improving our leadership skills. Welcome back, Tom. Thank you, Richard. We're recording this podcast in September, so the Halloween decorations have only been in the stores for a month or two now. But today we're going to be discussing leadership lessons from Dracula. All of us probably know Dracula best from the movies, especially the 1931 Bela Lugosi feature. And although vampires and vampire-like creatures have featured in folklore for centuries, the modern version of the story is essentially codified by Bram Stoker in his, in his 1897 novel. I haven't reread it in several years, but I remember being surprised by the complexity of the plot course the movie had to simplify it a bit, but I'm still sorry they lost the Texan character of Quincy. I've never seen him in any of the movies.
0: Actually, he was in the Gary Oldham version.
1: Was it? Yes. The influence in popular culture has been enormous, and I'm sure we all have our favorite representations. My personal one is Shadow of the Vampire with John Malkovich and Willem Defoe, but we're going to limit our discussion today to the original and, I guess, the finest exemplar. Tom, what do we want to learn from the undead that is going to serve us in our day-to-day life?
0: Richard, actually, I want to, first of all, uh, every October, I highlight classic monster movies in my pod, Excuse me, my blog, so I want to do a podcast around lessons that we might learn from Dracula. I want to break it down to a couple of different parts. One is leadership lessons around branding, and then more traditional leadership lessons. You're absolutely right about the differences in the book and the movie. I'm going to focus more on the movie. The book was, more, as you're absolutely correct, much more complex with more characters, and I'll use some of those thoughts for some leadership tips. Well, on the branding tips, I found uh, some really interesting thoughts around it. The first one is positioning Dracula. So you may wonder about why you would need to position a vampire, but actually that's because you're not understanding your competition. Your competition are the classic movie monsters. Frankenstein, Dracula, the Wolfman, Mummy, and if you want to go into the 50s, the creature from the Black Lagoon are generally viewed as the universal monsters. So how do you position Dracula vis-a-vis those? What makes him unique? First of all, the biggest differentiation is alter ego. Now, the Wolfman did have an alter ego as well, but Dracula can change or morph into a bat on demand. The Wolfman, unfortunately, has to wait for a monthly cycle to do, and it's really not it. it's something he wants to do. Dracula is different. He's not an alien. He's not a zombie. He has a clear, consistent position to our minds. The second is the defining the Dracula brand. So what does the Dracula brand stand for? Obviously, he mixes well in high society <clears throat> in the book, and in every movie, uh, certainly in the movie with Van Helsing, a uh, very refined personality, lives in an abbey in England, uh, lived in a estate and castle in Transylvania. So there's clearly a aristocratic bend to it, but he's also shrouded in intrigue. The One of the best signs of a vampire is that their reflection does not show up in a mirror. Their image does not cast a reflection. That's certainly intriguing. But when you throw in wolfsbane, garlic, the effect of a cross in front of the vampire which is how Van Helsing protects himself from counteracting it certainly works. Three is developing Dracula's identity, or what's your brand identity? So you're absolutely right. For me, Bela Lugosi was Dracula, and Dracula was Bela Lugosi. Although you named one of many actors who played him and played him quite well. But he's Bela Lugosi. That's just <laughs> the way it is. Sorry. Sorry, Christopher Lee and Frank you, Lemonjello. You're always going to hear that voice. And you're always going to hear that voice. And I want to drink your blood. But that's that's exactly what it is. It's that tagline. It's that Name, it's that logo. And for me, the two signature images are the cape and the teeth. And you can put on a pair of fake wax teeth at Halloween or literally any other part of the year, and everyone knows who you're referring to and what you're talking about. So even though I named the two, there's obviously more to Dracula's brand. It's his widow's peak hairdo, his Eastern European accent, his hypnotic eyes, <clears throat> the way he uses his fingers and hands. Obviously, his nocturnal feeding habits, where he sleeps during the day. All of those things are Dracula's identity, and they're things that we recognize as part of him. And finally, and here's the intriguing one, going public. (laughs) How did Dracula go public? When was his debut, as one might say here in the South? It was not in Transylvania. In fact, uh, but it's his launch started in Transylvania Castle, where he enlisted the in the movie <clears throat> the uh, lawyer the solicitor Renfield. In the book, it was Jonathan Harker. and th- But his debut was really in England. When he got to England in Carfax Abbey in the movie, he had a series of castles in the book. Uh, the grand entrance into London society, i.e. to his target audience or target market, was in London, so his coming out party. From these, I would draw some leadership lessons. I guess maybe, did you have any comments on those branding ideas? I thought they were great.
1: And really, if you look at it, He's more reviving a tired brand. In Transylvania, he's had centuries. He's had a good run, but his market has changed. He's (laughs) aged. (laughs) So now he's relaunching himself into the new cosmopolitan London of the turn of the century.
0: Yeah, it's a great point. Century, so it's not a launching; it's a relaunching, yeah. or a rebranding effort. Actually, great points. But there are some some leadership lessons that I'd like to to really then transition to. <clears throat> the first is, and this really ties into your point, which is position your business and stand apart. Perhaps he was standing apart in Transylvania. Perhaps there were a, co- <laughs> a competitive marketplace, <laughs> or uh, perhaps uh, there were other. Uh, the market was less favorable to him yeah. in Transylvania, and in London it was a, a much more target-rich environment. As they would say in Top Gun. So position your business and stand apart. And positioning is the way your business image creates your identity in the mind of your core market and gives them a reason to choose your offerings. Second, specialize and focus. Dracula specialized. He specialized in drinking blood. He specialized in creating undead. But in the business world, this allows you to differentiate your business and offers your presumed expertise and perceived value to the marketplace. So for the women, Dracula was very charming and very attractive to women, and that was how, in large part, he was able to obtain new victims. Your business identity next is made up of outer layers, and these are attributes that customers see and experience from your product. Make sure your offerings are unique. And once again, if you think of the competitors Dracula had, whether those competitors be other undead souls in Transylvania, or as I would suggest, the Mont, uh, universal classic monsters. He really differentiates that for many of the items we discussed, the cape, the teeth, the air of aristocracy, the mystery, all of those things are layers which lead to your company's identity. And finally, engage your staff and stakeholders. And embrace, Stakeholders what, in this case. <laughs> embrace what you stand for. And he certainly embraced that going forward. Some interesting lessons. I've got a few more from the book, but uh, do you have any thoughts on those? Yeah. The,
1: uh, one of the things that I think he's highly underrated on is his planning skill. Uh, you look at his plan to go to London. He'd spent years researching this. He picked London as the largest metropolis where he could more easily be anonymous and find more blood-rich targets, but he also he hired a lawyer, he hired real estate agents, he searched where the most favorable spot would be for his home base. In addition, he shipped 50 cartons of earth just in case one of them was discovered so that he would always have a place to... He hired staff in the form of gypsies to protect him during the daylight hours when he was vulnerable. I think his detailed plan for his
0: rebranding was really quite impressive. Something we've really not explored too much on this podcast series is supply chain. But he had a right-in-time supply chain, literally by taking 50 coffins worth of Sylvanian soil with him. In the book, it was clear that he had intended to, and it did, in fact, buy multiple properties in London. And his thought being that uh, he could reside in those, and if he lost some of the soil, he could use... Uh, he had a backup plan. What we have learned recently from the, the hurricane experience in Texas is if you have right in time supply chain, you really don't have a long chain that you can rely on if you can't be supplied rightly. So you need to consider other risks that you may have to manage, but he was certainly prepared for the supply he would need of his home soil to sleep in each night. And then also Renfield, you mentioned having the lawyer, but the key Probably my favorite scene in the movie was when the ship runs aground in England and the authorities come on board and they see Renfield. And I really can't do justice to what he looks like or sounds like, but Renfield is there really to... Confuse them so that Dracula can get away. And in the book, it makes clear that a large animal is seen running down the shore and it sees changes not into a bat, but a wolf, even utilizing Renfield to distract the authorities at that point. But any other thoughts? I think
1: we need to discuss the way he addresses both his strengths and his weaknesses. And in this case, it's not really a, as a brand, but his inability to move around by daylight. It's just he identifies both his strengths and his weaknesses, and he plans to accentuate his strengths and minimize his weaknesses.
0: So I'd now like to turn to the book because I found some interesting lessons in the book. And in the book, there's a triumvirate of people who finally are able to succeed in destroying Dracula. And there are really three points, which is the communication, number one that senior leadership needs to be able to communicate. And in the novel, it makes clear that it's not until late in the novel that everyone finally understands what they're up against. Had everyone been informed in earnest early on, it probably would have been a less of an enjoyable novel, but more of a uh, propitious time to save Lucy and prevent Mina from being bitten. The second thing was the three people who got together. We mentioned uh, Jonathan Harker who was the lawyer. We also had the Texan Quincy, and then Arthur Holmwood, who was actually the Van Helsing character in the movie. These three got together and made made plans to destroy the vampire. And then the final point, which you would seem would be as intuitive as a point could be when you're reading about watching classic monsters or reading fantastic literature, which is to be open-minded. And yes, it is fantastic to think that they are vampires, but maybe the message is just have an open mind. And certainly in a fictional world, you would have to have an open mind and a reader needs to have an open mind, whether that's suspended belief or just having suspended disbelief, I should say, or having an open mind. But nevertheless, as a leader, it pays to keep an open mind. And this in the novel was shown quite clearly because even though there was communications, the, the triumvirate was not open-minded enough early enough, and they lost Lucy to The Vampire. These were, I thought, some pretty good leadership lessons. It is, this will post in October, so it would be Happy Halloween Month, and it was... Really interesting, the branding lessons that you can learn here, you and I in 2017 are still talking about a movie from 1931 and a character from 1931. And when I see that picture of Dracula in my mind, it's still Bela Lugosi. And when I hear that voice, it's still Bela Lugosi. And probably there's not much, there are some iconic brands, obviously, but there's not much more than an iconic brand.
1: I agree. If you haven't seen it in a while, it's probably time to go revisit the movie or at least your favorite version of it. And I think I'll have to go back and reread the book now. Thank you, Tom. It's always a pleasure. And until next time, this is Richard lomas and Tom Fox.
0: This is Tom Fox again. Thank you for listening to this episode of Popcorn and Compliance. I hope you'll join Richard and I again as we continue to explore leadership lessons from classic Oscar-winning movies. I'd also like to tell you about a great new podcast series, which has premiered on the Compliance Podcast Network. That's The Corruption Files where with Hughes-Hubbard partner Mike D. Bernardis, we take a look at some of the top anti-corruption compliance enforcement actions across the globe. It's a great review of enforcement actions, literally 15 years old and coming forward, what they meant then and what they continue to mean now, all on the Compliance Podcast Network.